weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, February 1st, 2008. I'm Leslie Taylor. In this roundtable discussion held at the Philip TD Center on November 16th, 2007, a perfumer, a culinary instructor, a neurologist, a sound engineer, and a painter discuss how we take in the world through our sense of smell, taste, touch, sound, and sight. The speakers in the order they appear are Sophia Grossman, an American perfumer who has created some of the most well-known fragrances, including Calvin Klein's Eternity and Lancome's Tresor, Nils Norin, formerly executive chef at Aquavit and currently vice president of culinary arts of the French Culinary Institute and the Italian Culinary Academy of New York's International Culinary Center, Frank Wilson, neurologist and author of The Hand, How Its Use Shapes the Brain, Language, and Human Culture, Greg Calby, managing partner and mastering engineer at Sterling Sound in New York City, who has mastered records for artists such as John Lennon, Emmylou Harris, Paul Simon, and U2, and Philip Perlstein, an American painter known for making large-scale realistic figure paintings at a time when abstract painting dominated the American art world. And nose, it's a strange thing uh, that people who are creating fragrances are called noses. Uh, of course, nose has something to do with it, but it's not the key to being a creator of fragrances. And somebody asked me the other day, Do you, uh, are you familiar with eight, uh, 2,000 ingredients? I said, 2,000 ingredients? I never even count ingredients. I don't even know how many ingredients do I remember in general. What it is, is an art of connecting or uh, combining something that you smell at the moment. Um, also, I was asked, um, when I, when I go, I, we were just talking about that. When I walk out from the office, and after five or six hours of smelling things and connecting and uh, putting together, uh, um, I think if somebody passes by, unless it's really something very strong, I will not even be aware of anything. And at one point, my uh, ex-husband said to me, what kind of perfumer are you? Something is burning on the second floor in the kitchen. <laughs> I will never forget this statement. <laughs> and I said, well, if it's burning and you smell it, go ahead and close this. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I think uh, brain has uh, um, kind of a function that after you walk out from the office and you know it disconnects itself from, from the smell. And, uh, you know, in many times I had smelled something on people, and I would say to myself, oh, what a beautiful fragrance. I have to find out what it is. So I'm running and asking for the fragrance, the name of the fragrance. turns out to be one of mine. <laughs> but what is funny is that after you work on that for so long, and you are, uh, you are now doing the next thing, you don't remember it anymore, per se, you know. Unless, uh, so, so this is, you know, that's, that's a fun, the other thing about being a nose. Um, and I, yes, there are people probably who know many more ingredients than I do, uh, and they remember them. But for me, the most interesting thing is, you give me what's available, you put it on the shelves, and let me come up with an answer. That's how I work.
Or uh, if I see uh, a movie, or I see a special person, or I want to give somebody a gift. Like I did a little uh, for my son and my daughter-in-law for their wedding, I created uh, a little gadget called Petalia. It's a, it's a kind of a bouquet of uh, wedding bouquet. Uh, and, I, and I worked very hard on that. I'm still not finished with it, actually. <laughs> People received uh, a sample of it, but I'm not still happy with what I accomplished, and I'm going to continue back until I, I feel that I'm done with this. So this is uh, a part of what I am doing. All our senses, I think, plays an important part in what we do. I mean, food is not only about flavor, taste, even though it's the main thing. But, I mean, smell is a huge part of it. Uh, Sound is a great part of it. You know, if, if, if it doesn't sound right when you bite into a food, it's not right. You know, if the carrot doesn't have the crunch, it won't taste as good as you want. So it's, you know, I think all of the senses really play an important part in what we do. Uh, but anyway, talking about my background a little bit, I was obviously not born here either. I was born in Sweden, grew up there. But, you know, I've cooked in uh, several places around the world, from China to Australia, I've been in Singapore... Uh, Europe, of course, a lot. And uh, so I've been cooking for 20-something years, which would probably in normal years would be something like 40 years because, you know, as most of you know, chefs are kind of crazy. We can't stop what we're doing. It's like a 12-hour day is not enough for us. You know, it's got to be somewhere around 16, and that's how we go. So, I mean, I have worked a lot with food for a long time. Most recently, before I joined uh, the French Culinary Institute, I was executive chef at restaurant Aquavit here in New York. But uh, I wanted to take a step where uh, I could get a little more intellectual approach to food, where I could, you know, share all my experience from, from cooking food for quite a while and, and for so many different regions of the world. And, and what I do now is I work a lot with, first of all, what I started off a year ago when I got there is to make sure that what we teach today is relevant to what people eat today. Because the way we eat always changes. The way we eat today is different from the way we ate only five years ago and definitely the way we ate ten years ago. So it's important for me, because I was very opinionated about culinary schools, so it was a perfect gig for me to be able to do something about it. But, uh, you know, what we need our students to be is to be current and relevant, otherwise they're not going to succeed coming out in the industry today. So a lot of what I do is I work with new technology, uh, and new technology in terms of not how can I make special effects, how can I make big bubbles with smoke in it or, or things like that. That's, I'm not interested in at all. But I'm always interested in how can I take a new technology and make a more consistent and a better product for the customer. That's what it's all about. If I can find a way to cook that steak better for you as a customer, then I'm kind of obliged to go out and find out. So I work a lot with new technology. Uh, uh, I work a lot with new flavors. Uh, another thing that I work with, which is kind of goes together, is I work with a lot of cocktails as well, which, first of all, it interests me personally, but also there's uh, most cocktails, if you, if you will go to a... Um, uh, bookstore, whatever it is, and you look at cocktail books, they've all been written by bartenders, which is great. I think it's a fantastic profession. Don't get it wrong. But I'm trying to write it or work with cocktails from the perspective of a chef, because we think 
a little differently about flavor than a bartender. I would never start, if I create a cocktail, for example, I never start with a spirit. I never start to say, like, I have this great gin, let's create something. I start with, okay, I have fennel and I have lemon. What spirit would go best with that? So it's a little different. And also, since I work with technology, I'm a little crazy. Uh, I like all my drinks clear. So I have to figure out a way how to make, you know, I would never buy store-bought apple juice, for example, and make a cocktail with. I have nothing against apple juice in the morning, but my cocktail. So what I do is I... I uh, don't have cocktails in the morning. No, I don't. Even though sweets are known for it, though. But, no, so what I do is I, I fresh press my apples in a juicer, and usually it comes out being a, a bright green juice, which is lovely, you know, you use a little vitamin C so it won't turn, but the problem is it's not clear. So I have to go out and find a way to do it. So I go out and find, okay, so what do they use commercially to get their apple juice clear? And I find an enzyme and so on. That's, yeah. But that's a little bit, what, what, no, but what we're trying to do is, first of all, push, push the boundaries, find ways to make food better, and, and also teach our students to build up their flavor library, because that's something you need as a chef, like you need to taste things. Like when you taste something as, you know, someone that doesn't work with food, you go, mm, this is great, this fantastic dish. As a chef or a cook, you can't do that. You have to taste and say, oh, this is good, but why is it good? Yeah. What makes it good? Yeah. And that's the difference, and that's why I'm trying to teach our students. Very briefly, uh, Mark and I chatted a bit about uh, what might happen beginning, and he said, you know, I, I want you to maybe think about talking about when it was you thought about your own hands. And it was a very strange thing for me because I don't really think of myself as being particularly uh, the sort of hand-oriented person in my, in, in my own accomplishments. In fact, I was listening to what Sophia was saying and realizing, and, and also you as well, that one of the things that probably connects this group is that we are people who connect things. Um, it, it seems to me that's probably going to emerge as a, as a theme. We're not, we don't see ourselves as specialists or tech, technicians so much as whatever we got hijacked by early in life that sort of led us down a certain path never m moved us away from the, the thought or the, the impulse to, to connect other things. And I think that's probably true of me. I'm, I'm a neurologist and, and fairly early in my career, um, largely because of our, our daughter, um, I became interested in music, and I became interested in musical skill. Uh, I was watching her get ready for a recital, and she was getting ready to play the Chopin Fantasy Impromptu, and I'd listened to her for a long time, but she's about 12, and I looked at her hands, and I couldn't see her fingers, and I said, how, how the hell does she do that? How does she make her fingers go so fast? That really was a question that hooked me. Um, and it hooked me pretty much for life. I'm, I got stuck with that. And um, I became interested in, in music. I became interested in musical skill. Well, that's another story. And if you're interested in it, you can read the book. But I'm going to try to answer the question Mark asked me to, to think about, which was, what about my hands and, and what's my connection? Um, I did as a kid, actually. My father was a general practitioner, and he kind of liked magic tricks. Now, he wasn't a real magician. He was the kind of a guy who would, you know, buy a trick cigar or, you know, something like that and get a few laughs out of that. And I was at that level, never got above that level. Um, in, and I got into medicine at some point because I couldn't think of anything else to do. Um, and my first years in medicine actually were in an emergency room. I actually ran an emergency room for several years. 
And to my amazement, because I was actually terrified of the place, I was really frightened. I think maybe I chose going into an emergency room just to see how long I would last before they dragged me away or I fell apart. But I actually fell in love with it. And the thing that I fell in love with was sewing people up. There's just something about, uh, there must be a seamstress in me somewhere, but sewing people up was really wonderful. When I became a neurologist later, um, and I don't want to freak anybody out, but the thing that I found that I loved to do was spinal taps. Now, this may connect us with a, the, the group. But let, let, let me tell you, um, and this was a big surprise to me, but I thought about this the other night, that there was there's something phenomenal about the act of placing a small needle deep within the body, and you have absolutely nothing to go by except touch. And you know when you are right at exactly the right point because of a little funny thing that happens. There's a sensation that you get. And I was just awfully good at that. And I just hoped that there would be opportunities for me to do that. Okay. Now, I'm sorry, but that's the truth. Now, later on, I got interested in music. And then I thought a little bit more about the hand as this remarkable organ and I got interested in the in what is it that drives people to spend hours and hours and hours a day trying to gain control over this instrument in order to express something that is deep within them. The first book that I wrote was called Tone Deaf and All Thumbs and it was about how I drove everyone in my family crazy by me as a forty year old taking piano lessons. I tried to drive everybody out of the house and I pretty much succeeded. Um, but I didn't learn something about music at that point, and I came to appreciate that there was something that you could do making a musical sound. I remember playing the, um, the sunken cathedral a little bit, but there was a chord that I heard that made me feel that uh, I was in the room with someone who had, who had thought up that sound. And I bet you that that's something that happens to you once in a while. You think you're in the room with somebody who thought up a sound. That's a great thing. Um, then the last thing, my connection with hands, I, and I, I then took care of musicians a lot, and I really became very, very interested in what the hand has to do with human life. And my book, The Hand, is about what the hand has to do with how people build and construct their lives. I first thought it was musicians, and I discovered that, but for the school system, it would be everybody. Um, that's another story. The last part, the sort of third phase of my life was when I was working on that book. I met a guy who was a professional hand reader, a palmist. And I had made it my practice when I was getting ready for that book to interview anybody who somebody said, you should go talk to that person because he's a good this, that, or the other. So I met this guy, and um, we talked for a little bit. He said, do you mind if I look at your hand? And I said, why not? I showed him my hand and then he said a few things and then I picked myself up off the floor and I said, how do you do that? And um, anyway, I ended up taking a course from him and I became, I, as far as I know, I'm the only neurologist in the country who's a certified hand reader. Now, <laughs> now, it's very interesting that my last three years of practice, I was at Stanford and I was using hand reading in my practice at Stanford and it was people were sending me patients. Um, and I'll tell you what what you should know about this, and they knew this 500 years ago, that if you take someone's hand and you hold the person's hand and you say, this line is about your heart, they will tell you things that they would never tell you if you asked them if they're having any problems with their sex life. So as a, as a bedside 
um, inducement to share feelings and experiences that are closely held and about which the person feels very vulnerable, there's absolutely nothing like it. What I do basically is I'm a, I'm a recording engineer, but I'm a specific type of uh, recording engineer called a mastering engineer. So my, my clients are other recording engineers and other producers and artists, okay? And I'm kind of the intermediary between the artist and the artist meaning the performer or the, uh, the technician or the engineer, whatever, and the, and the audience, you know, all you folks who listen to music out in the, in the world. So um, to, to explain what I do, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not as adept at speaking to a group as the other panelists have been so far, so I've prepared a little something I'd like to read to you guys that will describe what I do, and um, excuse me for having to read it, but I, I couldn't rehearse. Um, <laughs> Uh, one of the most interesting challenges I've had in my 35-year career as an audio engineer has been to look inward and try to put into words just what it is I do, or rather what my ears and my brain and my imagination do as I listen to master recordings and try to figure out how to enhance them. Because this is, I work with the, what is the master, the, the last thing that the creative group can do before it gets to the audience. So um, that's how I make my living. People come to our studio from every part of the globe so that we can tell them how they have failed. <laughs> and, and, and we present them a better version of their work than they could have done. I'm at one level a judge of a recording. Has it reached its potential? Does it have any glaring weaknesses? Remember that when I listen to a recording, the performance is done, and the mix which includes all the effects has been completed. As I sit and savor that recording in my studio, a simple judgment is made, good or bad. At that point, I instantly inherit responsibility for its quality, for I, with the approval of my client, will determine how it will sound for the rest of the world. On the next level, I must develop a technical strategy using my ears and my gear to make this re take this recording to the next level. So you all never really hear what they do prior to when it gets to a mastering engineer. Um, and this is why we do have, a, we do have people do come from all over the world, because it is so difficult to get a really truly great representation of sound uh, because of the technical the technical factors the, the financial pressures the the temperament of artists the, the, the communication between all the creative elements ninety five percent of the recordings that that we get really do need some help and um, it's, a, it's, very, it's a very strange thing that there are probably ten guys in the country who've been doing the job for most of the records that have come out for the last 30 years. And uh, someone, a lot of times young people come up to me and say, well, how could I break into your business? I said, you have to wait till somebody dies. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a very peculiar little part of the, of the music business, Mastering Engineer. And because I work on basically uh, one project a day, I get to do about 200 records a year. I've done about six, over six, almost 7,000 records. So my name gets on these records. People work for a year on a record. They get one little name on it. I work for a day on it, and I get my name on it. So I'm, it's a little bit unfair, but I'll, you know, I'll accept it. It's, it works for me. <laughs> so how did I come to this? I, I neither write nor perform music, nor do I create any of the dazzling special effects found in modern recording. I simply take all those elements and recreate them in a more flattering, exciting, and beautiful form. In effect, I reimagine them. I can only try to theorize as to why I'm suited for this job in terms of my perceptual apparatus. I grew up in an Italian family in which many of the conversations uh, were in a language I did not understand. I was, it was only the sounds which conveyed any meaning to me in a most abstract way. To this day, I find soothing comfort in hearing uh, that language spoken 
and I still, I'm still trying to learn how to speak it after studying for 35 years. As a former altar boy, the many hours spent in Latin Mass in the 50s and early 60s had the same abstract emotional power. These sounds, however, instilled more fear than delight, as any Catholics in the room will, uh, will remember. At the, age of ten, at the age of 10, I was taken by a friend's parents to the Leonard Bernstein Young People's Concert, and although I don't remember the theater it was held or the program that was performed that day, what I do remember changed my life forever. It was the sound of the orchestra that was pure magic. The size, the depth, and the majesty of it, I can actually still feel its reverberations in my brain. And I do believe that it gave me the ability to imagine what a beautiful sound could be. And I really do believe that if I didn't go to that concert that particular day, I wouldn't have developed this emotional draw to a beautiful sound. And... Um, um, let me just continue. How, uh, how do I transpose recorded sound into a better version of itself? My ears work with the following elements. Balance. Does the recording have a tone which matches the intent of the music? Does the music project from the speaker in full frequency range? Are the lows and the highs enough? Is it wide enough? Is it deep enough? Uh, I also deal in, in the shape of the sound. As it comes out from the speakers, it's almost like creating a sculpture. Now, you probably don't think of it as a sculpture, except if you sit with headphones every once in a while. Headphones now are destroying the ears of an entire generation or two. But in those headphones, you do hear a little extra depth and width and everything. Well, I try to create that same feeling just from two speakers. And um, it's something which most of the guys in my trade don't really think of it that way, but I always think of it as a sculptural kind of a building and a way to, to kind of make the music separate from, uh, to, to me, the more it separates and the more you can hear the individual qualities of the instruments, the more each of those musicians has its emotional impact on you. So, you know, it's, a, it's an abstraction in a way, but, uh, you know, again, it has to be transformed into a, tech, uh, a technical, because uh, we're dealing with, you know, electronic equipment. And then the other, thing, the other thing that happens that I do is I look at the recording almost as the recording engineer would, and I'm listening to the vocalist, and I have to find something in the timbre of that vocalist which kind of matches what the song is trying to do. So there's a musical element there where as you listen to the music, if the singer, for example, uh, K.D. Lang, for example, has a very kind of baritone, resonant voice, if she wasn't recorded in, in the best possible way, I have to find that frequency in K.D. Lang's voice which brings out the emotion that she actually sings with. You know, we've all heard Sinatra, recordings of Sinatra. Sometimes you hear Sinatra live, later in his career, and the phrasing is the same, the song is the same, but it's all raspy, you don't have that thing. But you get to Sinatra in the early 60s and late 50s, where you hear his chest, you hear the, the depth of his chest, and all of a sudden, those emotions and those beautiful songs, and the wee small hours of the morning, that album, all of a sudden it has a completely different meaning. It's all about getting that nuance. So I have to kind of listen to that music, figure out what they were trying to do, and then see if there's something that, something that I can do that they haven't done before, they brought it to me. And the greatest thing that, uh, that can happen is if a really talented uh, recording engineer would call me up and say, it sounds so much better now. I don't know what you did. They always say the same thing. I don't know what you did, but it sounds better. I was in World War II, and I had time on the GI Bill, and I found myself enrolled about four blocks away from here at NYU Institute of Fine Arts to study art history. And the more I read about modern art, the more I realized, which at that point in 1951, 52, was already about 70 years old. And it had nothing to do with me. And 
I had adopted this uh, action painting technique from other people. And I felt, of, you know, it didn't belong to me either. And uh, I had grown up drawing realistically and trying to figure out how to paint realistically and uh, had gone through undergraduate school painting and drawing more or less realistically until I got involved with abstraction. And then I realized uh, all of it belonged to other people. And But if I went back to realism and using my eyes, uh, maybe I could come up with something that, you know, realism had been abandoned uh, at the turn of the 20th century. Maybe I could find something new. At the same time, uh, well, not at the same time, but several years later, I got a job at Life magazine doing layouts. Uh, we played around with photographs all day long uh, in different sizes, and you would crop them in different ways. Uh, the stories kept getting rewritten with different emphasis, and the way you cropped the photographs and arranged them on the page all had different meanings. Somehow that fit into the Panofsky symbolist kind of idea. Uh, I was mostly interested in time at what got left off, what, what was thrown away from the photograph. But I, I was in, at the time I was still doing abstraction and abstract expressionist kind of painting. But I had an eye exam as part of my, uh, when, the, when they employed me, they uh, sent me for a complete physical. <laughs> And I had my eyes examined for the first time, really, since I was a kid. Uh, I was now about 35 years old. And the doctor, you know, they changed these lenses. And suddenly he put in a pair of lenses, and I could see clearly. <laughs> so I said, I'll take those. <laughs> and I asked him, you know, how come all, all this time? Uh, I've had my eyes looked at, you know, including the time in the army. How come nobody ever gave me a good prescription? He said, "Well, doctors in the uh, during that the 20s, 30s, and 40s uh, underprescribed. They, they thought the patients, their patients, would be much happier not seeing so clearly, not seeing the world." <laughs> I guess they were right, but at any rate, it changed me. Um, I couldn't stand looking at Impressionist paintings anymore. <laughs> I still have difficulty. And, and I fell in love uh, with realism. I mean, with using my eyes to see as clearly as I could. And I became a realist painter. But I had to make up the manner in which I worked. Uh, it, it, became, it developed in a totally unconventional way. I, I only work from life, and you can only do the kind of looking I do with somebody or something there in front of you. Working from photographs is an entirely different thing, and it may produce uh, you know, a wonderful thing for somebody to look at, you know, enhanced realism, uh, but I don't do it. In, in, in hearing it, it's, in, it's, never, it's never right. 
I, it's really in, in my in my home environment. I have a, a, a stereo systems which are kind of like what we call called mid-fi, which is like they're good but they're not great, and they just you can listen to the music and enjoy it and not break it down into its parts. But in my in my studio is where I can really try to draw something forward and really and I. It's never right. It's 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 almost like I have a fantasy of what it should sound like when I hear it, and I keep trying to push it to that fantasy sound, and I push it and push it and do everything I can, and at some point the, the bell rings and I just don't have enough time, and it's just never. It's and I you know I sometimes I think that that's what makes me able to do the job because it's it really like if any of you were to come and watch me work, you would be. I mean, I brought so many people to the studio, and after like five minutes, they're like, "Oh my God, this is like so boring." Is anybody, is anybody singing here? Is there a drummer? No, it's just me, just listening over and over again to the same thing. But what I'm trying, what I'm trying to do, it never does get there. It's, it's just, I don't know if anybody has a similar, I don't know if you maybe in, yeah, in the food bit. thing, it's never quite, you know, you always want it to be just a little bit better. It is, and for me, when I when I work with food, you know, when you start off with food, then yes, you have to taste things to, to be able to figure out what's going to work together. But as I mentioned before, you know, you build your flavor library. So when I create dishes, I, you know, I create them in my head. And it's usually I wake up in the middle of the night and like, oh, this is what I have to do. And then you go back to the kitchen and try to recreate it because I know up here exactly how I want it to do. Do you do that in the middle of the night sometimes? Yeah, in the middle of the night. Or it can be, you know, I sit down and I watch TV, which rarely happens, but then it's like, oh, this is what I want to do. And these are the flavors. And I know up here I know exactly what they're going to taste like, but be able to recreate that in the kitchen is very hard. You can get very close, but it's, it's almost impossible to get exactly there. Everybody knows who Oliver Sacks is, and uh, there's another neurologist who's very interested in um, sort of f- f- unusual phenomenology of the, of the nervous system, whose name is Ramachandran. He's sort of the extroverted Oliver. And he wrote a paper um, that pertains to this discussion, I think, in a very interesting way, in which he described uh, a, a mysterious disorder that psychiatrists know a lot about called the Capgrass syndrome. Uh, the Capgrass syndrome, simply stated, is when someone encounters a person uh, who's very close to them and with whom they have a strong emotional connection and um, judge the person to be an imposter. The usual circumstances in the hospital after a head injury or something like that, and so this lady comes in and she spends time with the person and the family's around and the family leaves and the guy says, uh, the patient says to the doctor, that woman who was wearing my mother's clothing, um, who was she? And the doctor says, well, that was your mother. And he says, well, no, no, she's wearing my mother's clothing and she talks like my mother, blah, 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 but that's not my mother. And there have been a lot of theories about this. And Ramachandran... Uh, explored an idea that there there was a, a, a fundamental judgment that had to be made after um, one was confronted with um, a series of, let's say, per- perceptions, um, and that judgment was, this is real, this is, this is authentic, this is the real item, and that there might be a reason why someone would have all the essential data uh, but would fail to trigger the reaction that it was really the authentic thing. You know, Frank, it's so interesting when you said before about the uh, the, the touch uh, of the hand mm-hmm. in talking about the, the how's your love life, or you mentioned that, right. that, that and it, it, you know, I, I, 
I'm relating a little bit to a memory that I have when I, when I was in Italy with, with my cousin who's passed away, a much older man. And you walk along after dinner in, in, in southern Italy with your friend, you're arm in arm. And there's something about the touch which is, transforms the nature of the conversation. I mean, we became, we didn't, I basically could barely understand his Italian or whatever, but there was the touch. I'm wondering if there's any type of therapy that uses touch. Uh, psychotherapy, or that, that you know, because I mean, I mean, I've been a therapist many, many times in my life, and never, never even uh, shake hands with my therapist. Like, oh, I shake hands and that's it. But it seems like, <laughs> no, it seems like that would be. A, I mean, you, you know, you're a doctor. Maybe this seems like that would be a way to to. Uh... Well, I mean, I think that's a, that's an old that's an old tradition. My my dad was a GP. There wasn't a whole lot he could do. That this was before antibiotics, so he spent a lot of time with patients and he talked with them, and he was not. Uh, in any way shy at just simply about touching. And there's a lot of the physical examination that you do. You put a stethoscope on, you, you examine the abdomen. Uh, in, in my practice with, with musicians, I spent a lot of time examining hands, looking at hands. That was why it was really easy for me to get away with my, my kindergarten palmistry because people had no idea what I was actually doing until later. Um, I, I, have a, I have an example of... Uh, of something which I think really shows what my trade can do to enhance a piece of music. And what, what, it, what it is is a recording of a, a thing that Bob Dylan did about 20 years ago. Um, the album was called Oh Mercy, and there's a song called Ring Them Bells. And it was a, uh, it was a digital recording in the early days of digital. And uh, sounds like a long time ago, but in the early 80s is when di digital recording became came into the studio. From We went from the analog to the digital. Everyone was in love with the fact that it was quiet, there was no hiss, there was just the music. Unfortunately, the equipment in those days, the digital equipment, turns out to be very, very primitive by today's standards. So the album came out in the 80s, and um, this one song is a beautiful song. It was produced by uh, Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno, who've done the uh, U2 albums and just fantastic uh, soundscape kind of stuff. And it came out and existed in the marketplace for 20 years, and we just had an opportunity two summers ago to redo... I did about 16 of Bob Dylan's albums and put them out in a, in a box with, a, with kind of a new technology. So I came into the room before trying to figure out whether this room was a good room to be able to hear this nuance. And it's what I'd like to do is play you a minute or a minute and a half of the, of the early one that was out in the 80s and another one that we just did. And just get a sense through the instruments and through his voice and get an emotional sense of what you feel between the two. And then... You know, you get an idea of what we do now. Obviously, like I said before, not everything I work on has... You can have such an impact as you can with a piece of music like this Bob Dylan song. So, um, so it's a, a Ring Them Bells. Uh, the Jewel Box one, right? Yeah, okay. Ring Them Bells, yeah, from the city that Ring them bells from the sanctuary across the valleys and streams For the deep and the wide And the world's on its side Time is running backwards and so is the bride Okay, that's, that's the 1980 version. And again, now what happened was in the interim, we, we got away from, there was something kind of like a sanctity to digital signal in the early 80s, which was if it's digital, don't touch it, don't, don't transform it, it's perfect the way it is. So 
uh, you know, myself and a couple of other engineers always being in favor of analog sound and having kind of like the old equipment and the old approach. Uh, during the like late 90s, uh, it started to become a little bit more open as far as take, taking digital, transforming it to analog, doing a couple of different backs and forth or whatever. And, and uh, I could tell you after we li listened to this, technically what I did, but let's while the sound is fresh in our head, let's play the other one. And okay. So the left hand of the piano now, the deep tones of the piano came out. His, the, deeper set, the deeper part of his vocal, you start to hear a little bit more of the emotion in the bottom of his voice. And the organ kind of separated and pulled away a little bit from the piano. So you had a little bit of a bigger feeling. You had a little bit more of an emotional feeling. And that bottom left hand of the piano filled up something that didn't exist for 20 years. Now, when I, that, record, that recording originally, when I got it, in the early 80s, because I got a chance to work on it both times, didn't sound as good as it sounded the second time. It's the, the, cause it came from the studio, sounded very close to what the, the people in the 80s heard, very similar to what the people in the studio created. But again, with the evolution of the equipment and the evolution of an approach, we were able to take something from that and pull it forward. And uh, if, you know, if, if we were in a, a situation where we had a lot of time, I could play you pieces from maybe 10 or 12 of, of Bob Dylan's albums where we not only were able to, to enhance what, what we got, but we were able to select from tapes that existed from his earlier albums that were never used for production. Uh, there's so much that goes into this. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, and an artist like Bob Dylan, you know, there's plenty of uh, budget to be able to spend time. I spent a whole summer on, on, on that project. I used analog tape. I took the digital signal and made an analog tape of the digital album in, in the, when I did it two summers ago. So the analog digital thing was very, very much uh, a, a huge factor in how I was able to transform it. Because if I would have tried that in the 80s, everybody would have said, you can't do that. No, it's a digital. It's perfect. The, 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 the senses are something we all have, and we just, as professionals, I mean, we all have to try to encourage people to use their senses to experience things a little bit better. To find out about all that's happening at the intersection of science and culture, visit our website at scienceandthecity.org.